Okay, if you have Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. We have been working our way through uh, John's Gospel. Uh, we're currently in chapter 14. We're looking at what's commonly referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, Jesus is having a deep and personal conversation uh, with his closest disciples, with his closest friends. And he's teaching them just profound and priceless truths. Um, and today we're going to take a look at verses 15 through 21. Let's, uh, let's read those verses. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will, um, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So Lord, we thank you for your word today, for the truth, for the power that's in your word. Lord, I ask that you give me grace today to share, to share your word with your people in a way that leaves its deep impact and mark on us. Make us to be more like you. And Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. So just to give a little bit of context, the conversation Jesus is having in his, with his disciples and what he's doing in chapter 14, it starts from the very beginning saying that he's comforting them. See, at the end of 13, Jesus says to the disciples, he's going away. And it freaked them out a little bit. They've been following him for three years and now he's saying that he's leaving and they can't follow where he's going. And in metaphoric language, he's telling them, hey, I'm about to be crucified and die, and you guys can't go where I'm going. And it, it messed them up. They're thinking, we've been following you all this time. What do you mean we can't follow you anymore? And so chapter 14, he's trying to comfort them. And so he tells them here in these verses, he's not going to leave them often. And he will send them another advocate. And so let's, this is the context of it. He's comforting his friends who are distressed that he said he was going away. So verse 15 in this section here is profoundly significant. It's very, very uh, important. A clear understanding of verse 15, of this verse, it unlocks the rest of chapter 14. And in the New International Version, it says, if you love me, keep my commands. Now, I'm of the opinion, having done this for a long time, I think I can speak with some measure of authority, that most Christians suffer from what I call um, a PBC. I call it PBC, performance-based Christianity. Most Christians suffer with an acute case of performance-based Christianity. Um, our entire lives have been performance-based. From early childhood, we've been performance-based. We got timeouts. Anybody get a timeout? Anybody get spankings? I got spankings. <laughs> We used to get put in the corner, right? That was a punishment. You stand in the corner until I say, <laughs> was it our son or our daughter, May, when we were out in that park that day? 
Right. So he's misbehaving. We're at some family picnic or something, and and his mother says, "Stop! Or I'm going to put you in a corner." And he looked at her and said, "There's no corners out here." <laughs> <laughs> And she picked him up and put him in front of the tree. She said, this is the corner. He's like, no! <laughs> so there were timeouts. There were spankings. Hey, but there were treats and there were rewards. Oh, at Santa Claus, right? If, you, if you're a bad little boy, I get coal in my stocking. If I'm a good little boy, I get presents under the tree. This all reinforces a performance-based lifestyle. School, we're measured, tested, graded, compared. Right? If we perform well, we make varsity. If we don't perform well, we're, I don't know, junior varsity or second string. Or maybe we don't even make the team, right? I mean, it's, it's entirely reinforced. Same thing as we grow up on our jobs. Good performance usually equals promotion, and bad performance means what? I don't know. You could get fired. You're certainly not going to get promoted. Life in this world has us conditioned, entirely conditioned, to be performance-based. It's the lens that we look through. Now, for most of us, it's all we know. So, of course, we apply this mindset, this performance-based mindset, to God and the faith and to church and to the religion in general. How could we not? It's, it's all we know. We view our interaction with God as we view all other interactions in life. And if we do good, we get good. If we do bad, we get bad. Does it sound familiar to you? Am I, am I, am I misdescribing? Or? That's kind of how it is, right? Now, so for most of us, church life has also reinforced this performance-based mentality. It's gone a long way to reinforcing a performance-based. Lots of churches, not, not us, lots of churches have membership, right? And so what does that mean? A church has membership, and now we can decide who's a member in good standing, and who are members not in good standing. What does that sound like? Well, that's performance. If you're a member in good standing, it means we could check off a few boxes that you do such and such things that we would like you to do. We want attendance on Sunday. We want people to tithe or give offerings, participate in church-sponsored programs. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. And, and in some of these places, we're reminded that if we... If we rob God of our time or our treasure or our talents, then in some way, form or fashion, bad things will be the result for us, right? Don't rob God or you'll be punished. Okay, I don't believe that, right? We don't even have membership. You want to be a member of the Charlottetown Vineyard? Show up. If you show up, you're a vineyard. Uh, you're a member of the vineyard. Right, that's it. So Wayne Jacobson, I announced a few minutes ago, he's coming to visit. Love Wayne. In his, in his book, uh, He Loves Me, um, in chapter 6, it's, the title of chapter 6 is called The Tyranny of the Favor Line. And he defines the favor line as this. What is the favor line? It is the invisible line that tells us whether or not we've met enough of someone's expectations to merit approval. It's impossible to live in this world without recognizing the favor lines impact on every area of life. Doesn't that make sense? Right? In that same chapter, Wayne sums up <clears throat> uh, the, uh, the account of a young girl who'd gone to youth group. She came home from youth group, and her parents said to her, hey, how'd youth group go? And this was her answer. God is good. 
you're bad, try harder. That, that was the message that she got from youth group. God's good, you're bad, try harder. Now, I think that's pitiful. I think that's absolutely pitiful. The church has got to be, be able to offer the world a better message than God's good, you're bad, try harder. I think that stinks. Where's the good news in that? I have no good news in God's good, I'm bad, try harder. Right? That's performance-based Christianity. Now, sadly, for far too many of us, that girl's statement sums up our Christian experience. That's the lens the church has looked through, and it's the model that's been presented to us constantly and consistently reinforced. Try harder until you make it past the church or the organization's favor line, and therefore God's favor line. And so it's with those very lenses that we read verse 15, and in my humble opinion, we completely misunderstand it. We read verse 15 with performance-based Christianity lenses, and we entirely miss what it is Jesus is saying to his closest friends. Now, before I get to verse 15, let me just say a couple other things. I added a couple of verses to my notes this morning. They're not going to be on the screen. So the next two verses I mentioned are not going to be in there. So, um, Proverbs 16.9 says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Most of us have heard that, right? You've seen bumper stickers, little magnets with that. We've seen that verse all over the place. Now, in my life, I've known very few malicious people. People who, with purpose and intent, choose to do wrong. I've met, I've met very few people where that was the case. I've met some but very, very few. One percent of the people I say in my whole life. And I grew up in Brooklyn. I didn't grow up on PEI. Right? And still, it's only a handful of people I met that are, truly had malicious intent. Most people, they're doing the best they can with what they have and what they know, right? They, they're taking the, the life that's in front of them, the circumstances they're faced with, the resources they're able to muster, and they're doing the best they can. And so... With that in mind, last night I, um, I was invited to lead worship at the, at the um, Prince, uh, PEI House of Prayer run by Noah Mall. So I went last night and, and led worship for them. And it was a small group of people, but boy, the presence of God showed up. And so the Spirit of God was speaking to me last night. And I had some dreams this morning. I, I won't take the time to explain. And the Holy Spirit speaking to me on the way to church. And this is what I sense, just kind of putting those little pieces together from what the Spirit was saying, is that we've planned our courses, all of us here. And I felt it was for us, the timing of it. I think it's for us. We have planned the courses of our life. We're doing the best we can with what we have and what we know. But God's determining our steps. We've planned our course, but God is determining our steps. God's putting people and circumstances in his right order. And he's doing it with his mercy and his grace. I believe that things have been and will continue to change for this reason. We have a way that we think is right for us. We have a path, a course that we planned out. And then, the, and then the scripture says, but. I think right now we're in the but. We're in, the, in between those two portions. But God's determining the steps. And so he's changing things. 
It doesn't mean that we're evil. It doesn't mean we have malicious intent. I think we've been doing the best we can. And out of His mercy and grace, as a response to our heart's cry, He's now going to determine our steps. Things are changing in our lives. Proverbs 14, 12 says a similar thing a different way. It says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death. Isn't that true? Boy, oh boy. Just look at the world today. Anybody watch the news? Why would we want to watch the news, right? There's a way <laughs> that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. You know, there's a way that seems right to a man, and this is what I've discovered. Even theologians, horrible. Even theologians, there's a way that seems right to them when they read the scriptures, when they try to study God and the things of God. It seems right to them, but it leads to death. Theologians, Bible translators, the same thing. There's a way that seems right to them, but they're looking through that same performance-based lens that we do. But I believe God's giving course corrections right now. He's giving course corrections this very day. He's leading us back to love and to grace and to freedom and away from a performance-based Christianity. I believe he's redeeming his church and restoring right relationship with people and himself. And I think there's a ripple effect in our lives as God redeems the church and restores relationships with him, I think it's going to redeem circumstances in our lives and restore broken relationships in our lives. I think that's what he's doing. I think that's absolutely what he's doing. Now, you know there's going to be pushback against that? You know, as we begin to walk in the steps that he lays before us and we go on a path that's other than death, there'll be some resistance from the enemy, right? And so it's, how's that, what's that going to look like? You're going to have a fight on the way to church Sunday morning. That's going to happen, right? You're going to have conflict with people that you never have conflict with. It's, it's, it's part, it just comes with territory. If you want to live a spiritual life, then, then there's spiritual forces on both ends that's going to, some are going to work for us, and some are going to work against us. So back to verse 15. I said all of that just to make this point. We misunderstand verse 15. In the NIV, it says, if you love me, Keep my commands. Now, for most of us, when we read those words, this is what registers in our brain. If you really loved me, you would do what I told you to do, right? Or do what you've been told, and it'll be proof that you truly love me. That's what goes off in our head when we read the words, if you love me, keep my commands. And you know what? It's absolutely not saying that at all. That's an old covenant mindset. That's do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. It's performance. We look at that verse through performance conditioning. And that's not what Jesus is saying. If that was the case, why did Jesus have to come? We already had a system in place for that under the old covenant. Follow the rules and you'll be blessed by God. Break the rules and there'll be consequences for it. That was the old covenant model. The old covenant model absolutely was do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. That's not the new covenant model. If that was the model, we wouldn't need a new covenant. So, I think the new American Standard Version is closer, is more accurate with verse 15 than the new international version is. It says this in the NASB. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a little bit different. If you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. Uh, a new translation called the Passion Translation. Anybody heard of it, the Passion Translation? Nobody? It's awesome. It's usually what, um, who's the guy at Bethel? Bill Johnson. He usually preaches uh, the Passion Translation. I think they get it best of anybody else I read. And this is what it says in the Passion Translation. Loving me empowers you to obey my commands. Loving me empowers you to obey my commands. Love is the key. Guys, I've been telling you this for weeks. It's all about relationship. This whole God thing, this whole thing that we've, we've defined as Christianity, it's all about relationship. It's about a love relationship between us and God. And the fruit of that love relationship, when love is happening, when we're experiencing the love of God and we're loving God back, the fruit of that relationship is obedience. Under the old covenant, obedience precedes a love relationship. Under the new covenant, the fruit of a loving relationship is obedience. And the difference is profoundly significant. It's night and day. If it was just about obedience, like I said, we could stay with the old covenant. Now, the natural overflow of an intimate, loving relationship with the Lord is that we become more like Him. It's utterly impossible for us to work our way into that state. If there was any intention, if there was any purpose to the Old Covenant, was to prove to us that we could never keep the law. We would never be righteous, Romans says, by keeping the law. The whole point of the Old Covenant was to show us we couldn't do it on our own. We didn't need God to help us to make us better. We needed him to rescue us. We needed him to transform us. Because we were utterly incapable of doing it on our own. That's the new covenant. We're right in him. Righteous. We're right with God. We're right in God because we're one with God. That's how it happens. Now, just a reminder concerning commands. What is what is it that Jesus has commanded us to do? What command has he given us to obey? Was, is it the Ten Commandments? Is he referring to the Ten Commandments here? Absolutely not. You cannot read John chapter 13 and 14 in context and see the Ten Commandments as the answer to that question. He's talking about the words that he spoke to them just moments ago in chapter 13. When he says to them in verses 34 and 35, a new command... I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, as I've already loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. See, he loves us. Then we, he models it for us. He's the example of it. He showers his love on us, and then we love other people. Guys, it's all about relationship. It begins with him. In verse 15, Jesus is saying that if you enter into a love relationship with me, you will be able to keep my command to love. That's what verse 15 means. If we miss this, if we misinterpret verse 15, none of the rest of it makes sense to us. As a matter of fact, if we misunderstand verse 15, we're thinking performance-based the whole rest of the chapter. And that's not what it's saying. <clears throat> if we miss this, we miss everything. And when we do, church becomes just another ladder to climb, another pecking order to navigate. And God becomes the, the tyrant of that favor line. Try harder, try harder, try harder. And that's not what he's saying. 
When the truth is this, John 1.14 tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came to us. He took on our form. He came down to our level. He entered into our world. He didn't ask us to build some mighty tower that, or some giant ladder that we could climb and attain access to him. It's profoundly important. He came to us, and he still comes to us. His design has never been that we make ourselves acceptable to him. He took our form and came to us. God made all the effort and came to us, and he wants all he wants, all he's ever wanted was our hearts and our love and our friendship. Jesus absolutely is not saying, obey my commands and then we can experience love relationship. That's not what he's saying. No, instead he's saying, let's love one another and that'll change everything. Obeying my command to love will flow freely because I am the source of all love. The NASB, again, says, verse 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. I love the way the uh, Passion Translation says it. Loving me empowers you to obey my commands. So just so you realize, I'm not reading more into this than in, in the text than actually is there. If you read down a few verses, if you have a Bible with it, to 14 verses 22 and 23, and listen to these words in light of my explanation. Replying to a question from his disciples, Jesus says, Anyone who loves me will obey my, my teaching. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. If you love me, obedience will flow from my teaching. Obedience to my teaching will flow. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So love precedes obedience. Love, relationship with God, empowers us to obey. His, his command to love. What does it tell us in 1 John 4, 19? We all know this verse too. We love because he first loved us. That's the pattern. That's how it works. We don't somehow you know, beat ourselves into submission and work up love. I, I can't do it. If he doesn't love me, I'm making it through the day. Well, I'm able to love somebody else because he's first loved me. We love because he first loved us. Yes. He loves us, we love him, and we're empowered to love others. Yes. So now verse 21 makes sense. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Right? The one who has the commands and keeps the commands, you know how you identify that person? That's the person who loves me. They're the ones who have already been in the process and, and busy with the activity of loving me. He who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love them and show myself to them. Now remember, he's comforting his disciples. Right? He said he was going away. He's, and he's telling them, he gave them a command to love. He's challenging them to, to, to obey that command. And in that, they'll get to see him. So like any good preacher, Jesus is simply restating the same point another way. I do that most Sundays. I'm kind of looking on your faces. If I get a blank stare, I'll just keep saying the same thing again and again and again. I'll just find different ways to say it. So blink once in a while, nod your head, you know. And I'll move on to the next point. 
The keeping of the command to love is the fruit of the love we share. All right, so let's move on to verses 16 and 17. The first half of 17. Jesus said, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. So, so who is this advocate? Who is this spirit of truth? Who is this helper who will be with us forever? Jesus, <laughs> Jesus clarifies in verse 26. He, he defines for us. He says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said. So the advocate, the one who, who was asked for by Jesus, the one sent by the Father, this helper who will be with us forever, the one that Jesus calls the spirit of truth, who will teach us all things, is none other than the Holy Spirit. And in the rest of verse 17 concerning the Holy Spirit, this is what Jesus says. He says, the world cannot accept him, the Holy Spirit, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Okay, this is important, verse 2, the second half of verse 17. He says, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. The word knows here is a, is a great Greek word. It's the Greek word gnosko. It's a, it speaks of an intimate knowing. As a matter of fact, it's a Jewish idiom for, for sexual intercourse. It's that, that depth of level of an intimate knowledge. It's not a superficial knowledge. It's, it's the deep, abiding, intimate, loving relationship shared between a husband and wife. It's not anywhere near merely intellectual comprehension. That's not the knowing. That's not the knowledge that's referred to here when Jesus speaks of the, the Holy Spirit. It's more than book knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. It's a hands-on knowledge. It's an on-the-job training type of knowledge. Right? I mean... You could read a recipe for bread, and that's vastly different than the experience of actually making bread, right? You, you can read in a book. Knowledge is one thing, and I'm not saying it's bad, but you, just because you can read it in a book, you can read a recipe about bread in a book, doesn't mean you can actually bake the bread. It's two entirely different things. So Jesus isn't talking about reading the recipe here. He's talking about making the bread. He's talking about the hands-on knowing. And the world does not know. He does, does not know in this form, in this fashion. So our Greek-influenced Western worldview mindset, we've surrendered experience for exegesis. We've surrendered intimacy. And we've been too easily satisfied with information. We've surrendered the high ground of living in the spirit and we've just decided to live in the arena of the soul, the mind, the will, the emotions instead. And I'm thinking, that's a raw deal. That's not what Jesus came for. And we get raw. If we live just here, I'm not saying we should throw our brains out, but if we live just here, we're missing the best portion. It's like, I don't know, you get an appetizer and you leave the steak behind. What? You know? <laughs> It's like I put a big old juicy porterhouse steak on your plate and I'm thinking I'm going to eat the green beans and have a little potatoes. I'm not taking a bite of the steak. Eat the potatoes. Eat the green beans. But goodness sake, eat the steak. This, the realm of the spirit, the 
the experiential, intimate knowing of God, that's the steak. That's the meat. That's the best portion. Guys, we are the bride of Christ. We are not the librarian of Christ. <laughs> Seriously. Vine's expository dictionary backs up this take, this understanding, in the way it defines the word sees. It neither sees nor knows. The word sees here, theoreo, um, is defined this way. It is used of experience in the sense of partaking of or partaking in. The world cannot accept the Holy Spirit because it has not experienced the Holy Spirit. The world cannot um, accept the Holy Spirit because it hasn't seen the Holy Spirit. It doesn't know the Holy Spirit. The word world here means universe. It's the word cosmos. It means everything, specifically people, all people who haven't known God, who haven't had a relationship with God, who haven't experienced God. <laughs> I so much love that we did the song Undignified Say. Love, love that song, right? love that song. We have, in the church today, we have put way too much emphasis on being dignified. Oh my goodness, you know? I'll become even more undignified than this. Anybody remember, know where that line comes from? Where David. Is it? Huh? King David. King David, right? From 2 Samuel something or another. And so they're bringing the, they're bringing the presence of God in and and so they take six steps and then they dance and have a party. And David's dancing in an ephod. That's, that's like holy biblical language for underwear. He's dancing like a crazy man in his underwear because he's got this extraordinary passion for God. And so his wife, Saul's daughter, King Saul's daughter, is watching from the tower. And she's annoyed. She's like, look at the king dancing in his underwear before all these servant girls. And so when he gets in the house later on, she gives him what for. And his response to her is, I'll be even more undignified than this. Right? Yeah! Being dignified isn't all it's cracked up to be. That's more, the, that's more of our performance-based Christianity mindset. That's more of um, our Western worldview influence. And we, think, and we call it holy. We call it godly. David didn't think so. And you know what it said of Micah, his wife? That she was barren all her days. That's pretty, that's sobering. I don't know. I would rather risk by being undignified. Uh, just me. So Jesus goes on to say to his closest friends concerning the Holy Spirit, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. But you know him. You've seen You've experienced the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he lives with you. Well, what do you mean, Jesus, he lives with me? Well, namely, the Holy Spirit has lived in bodily form in Jesus. And they've seen and experienced these past three years all of the activity of the Holy Spirit in the bodily form of Jesus. It's that marvelous mystery of the Trinity, that perfect oneness that they share. When they see Jesus, they've seen the Father. Jesus told them that. When they live with Jesus, they've lived with the Holy Spirit. Because the Father, Son, and Spirit have always been one, and they were never separated. Never, ever. And then he promises them, and he will live in you. And what's he referring to there other than Pentecost? There's a day 
when the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon the church. And not only will you live with the Holy Spirit like you've lived with me these three years, but he will actually dwell with inside you. Christ in us. The hope of glory. Right? That's their soon coming promise in, this, in the telling of this, this account. It's our reality. We live with this fulfilled promise now. He lives within us. Verses 18 to 20. And I will not leave you orphans, comforting words to his friends who are concerned about him leaving. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Huh. Jesus is telling his friends, I'm not going to abandon you. He said, the Father will send you another expression of ourselves, the Holy Spirit. And when I rise from the dead and I live, you'll live. Then, then you'll experience this marvelous, wondrous light of the Trinity. You'll experience what, what I've always wanted, what God's always wanted, the whole purpose for creation. That we'll be one. That we'll be one. God created you so that you could be one with him. Now, presented in this room are people with vast careers and you've done some amazing things in your life and that's great. And I, I applaud you for doing it. But know this, your highest calling and purpose for existence is that you would be one with God. Yes. I, I like being a pastor. It, it fits me. But that's not why God created me. He created me for, to be intimate with him, to be one with the Father, Son, and Spirit. We'll, we'll read more about it in great depth in chapter 17, but we get a foretaste here in verse 20. He says, on that day, what day is he talking about? When the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you're in me, and I am in you. <laughs> Do you get just how amazing that is? That Jesus is in the Father. We got a box for that, right? But that we're in Jesus, I don't know, it gets a little bit fuzzy, and that Jesus is in us. If we could grasp the reality of this oneness, of who we are in him, actually inside of him, him inside of us, that's a game changer. Guys, God is better than you thought he was. He's more loving than you thought he was. He's more kind, more gracious, more merciful. He's more faithful than you ever could possibly imagine. We've been sold a bag of goods. We've been sold a story of an angry God. And that's a lie. That's through the filtering, filtering lenses of performance-grace Christianity. God's not mad at you. He loves you like crazy. He is madly and passionately in love with you. And his purpose from the beginning, and has done all that he's done, a great personal sacrifice, so that you can experience that oneness. See, that, since the be, be, before time existed, there was this perfect circle of love, this perfect, intimate love shared between Father, Son, and Spirit. And in that place of love, this is what they thought. We want other people to experience this. We want to create other beings so that you can enter into the marvelous light and incredible experience of this perfect love. That's why you exist. That's your, that's your highest purpose. That's why God thought you into existence. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He breathed life into you and so that you could experience his love and love him in return. 
It reminds me of some of my favorite verses out of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 18. It says this. Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus. He says, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So why? So Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in what? In love. May have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that what? It surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I'm not there yet. I think if somebody put a dipstick in me, they'd say, Tom, you are not filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. I need more. I want more. And it's found in him and it's available to us. Guys, this is the good news. This is the message of the gospel. This is good news. How wide, how long, how deep, how absolutely limitlessness there is to the love of God. His love for us. Truly a love that surpasses knowledge. Verse 20 of John 14 says that on that day you will realize. On that day you will realize. And here's my prayer today. Oh God, let this be the day. For every single one of us here. Lord Jesus, let this be the day. Let this be the very hour when we realize how great your love is for us. Let this be the day. Lord, I pray that beyond our circumstances, beyond our situations, beyond the trials that we face and the difficulties we deal with every day, beyond our hurts, our pains, our wounds, our scars, our brokenness, let this be the day of God that we realize. Let this be the day. So, Lord, I pray, set us free from performance-based Christianity, Lord, I pray that we would know the truth, the good news of your gospel, the truth of your love, and that it would completely liberate us and set us free. Lord, set us free from the tyranny of the favor line. Set us free from the God is good, you're bad, try harder roller coaster. Lord, I want to off that ride. I want to ride that ride. I don't want to go around one more time on that roller coaster. Get me off. Get us off that ride. Sweet Jesus. Lord, give us the spirit of truth. Give us a revelation. Give each individual today a revelation of just how wide and how long and how high and how deep is your love. And oh God, help us enter into that love relationship with you that you've always wanted. Pour out your love on us that we might love you in return. Oh God. So the worship team will come back up. Now, if you need ministry today, if you're here today and you're thinking, wow, I could relate to some of this. I need to be set free from performance-based Christianity. Come forward. We, we want to pray for, for you today. If you feel like you've been living life way too long over the, under the tyranny of the favor line, if it's at work, if it's at church or God or whatever, and you want to be free from that tyranny, Come forward, let's, I want to pray for you. If, you. if you, like me, if you've had enough of God's good, your bad, try harder, and you want to be set free from that, come forward today uh, as they lead us in a final song.
we want to pray for you. If you haven't had an experience of God, if you've been stuck, limited, simply with head knowledge and alone, and you want more than that, if you want to actually experience Him, the love of God, if you want the Holy Spirit, come forward today, and uh, we'll pray for you as these guys lead us in a closing song. Yeah, I, I, I really sense that too, Tom. I just keep...